Up on the screen, you'll see that there are some hieroglyphics. For the longest time, when they first started to rediscover all the Egyptian ruins, the pyramids, all the temples, uh, all of those bits and pieces, uh, they found all of these hieroglyphics and they couldn't read them. The actual interpretation of the hieroglyphics had been lost with time and so they'd find all these amazing monuments and all these documents and, and they kind of had a sense, they had a hunch that it was a really important, there's some really important things and they just didn't know how to read it. But then in 1799, so, you know, just a few years ago, um, they've discovered this thing called the Rosetta Stone. Now, what was really significant about the Rosetta Stone is that on the Rosetta Stone was the same text in three different languages. One was hieroglyphics, one was what was called a demotic script, and one was, which I also couldn't read particularly well at the time, and one was ancient Greek. And this Rosetta Stone, this one stone, unlocked all of the hieroglyphs, or at least began the journey of unlocking, the capacity to read all of the lost writings and scripts of ancient Egypt. Just by finding this stone, because they were able to read ancient Greek, they knew what ancient Greek meant. And so they were able to look at the text in ancient Greek and they were able to actually go and see what it meant in each of those three places. And so from that point forward, they were actually able to unlock what had been lost. The question I want us to sort of look at today and dig into as part of our series looking at Philippians is, is there a Rosetta Stone equivalent for understanding joy? Is there, is there something that when we can discover, when we can unlock this, it kind of paves the way to be able to fully and truly understand what joy is, what it looks like, and how we can experience it. Is there something, is there a concept, is there a thing? Uh, cheat notes, I think there is. Uh, and we're going to sort of explore that and see what does it look like to live that out. And we're continuing in our series being joyful, learning to be filled with joy. This doesn't necessarily mean you're always happy, you're always cheery, you always have lots of things going on, everything's going really well for you. It's understanding, unpacking, what does the Bible teach that joy actually is? So the definition that we've been kind of using as a bit of a base uh, is the Merriam-Webster definition, which says this. This is what joy is. It's the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. And the bit in particular that we've been tying into, because I actually think it's the closest to what the Bible teaches on joy, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. The prospect of possessing what one desires. And we're talking a lot about coming to understand as people, what do we desire? And how do we ensure that what we desire actually lines up with God, lines up with Scripture, lines up with who He is, and in so doing helps us to discover and to receive and to experience the promise of joy from the Bible. So jump in with me. It's week three. So which book are we up to? Which chapter are we up to? Chapter three. Nice and simple, nice and easy. Next week, if you want to get in advance, read through chapter four. 
So Philippians chapter 3, kicking it off at verse 1, Paul is really, really bad at building tension because he actually gives you the answer straight off the bat. Right here at the very start, he tells you the answer and then we're going to go through and sort of see what that looks like. And this is what he says. Further, my brother and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard to you. It's kind of similar to, but not exactly the same as what we looked in week one. In week one, we talked about there's a joy that we can experience despite circumstances. And that is the joy of knowing Jesus. And so Paul kind of comes out here and he goes, you actually, you might have missed this in chapter one. Because we went through that stuff in chapter two about unity and, you know, looking after one another and loving one another. So in case you missed it in chapter one, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. That this is the starting point for all Christian joy. But as we go through this chapter, Paul's going to really hone in on, so what does this actually mean? Like, for some direct, it's like, yeah, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, great. Now let's move on. What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to look through. So then we jump into verse 2 to 3. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this almost needs a warning, strong language. If you ever doubted, if you maybe thought, oh, I wonder if there's ever a place for like strong words about people. Because remember last chapter, if you were here last week, the last chapter, Paul talked about if you've got any love, if you've got any tenderness and compassion, if you've got any of these, and he talked about all these really nice, concepts and what it means to experience unity and togetherness. But in the exact same letter, just one chapter later, Paul does not mince his words when he is describing this group of people that we're about to talk about. Now, to call someone a dog today, it doesn't go down well. Don't, don't, don't go around calling people dogs. Like, it's not a good thing. In the time that this was written... It was even worse. Like, it was like, you just don't call people dogs. Like Dogs is really... And then, you know, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, and they've tried to do the best they can to capture in English the strength of Paul's language here. He is not beating around the bush. He is being very, very deliberate and to some degree provocative, because he doesn't want the Philippians to miss the strength of what he's about to say. These people that he is warning the Philippians about are people that they need to be really clear to try and stay away from, to, to try and not be caught in by what's going on. And so what he's doing is he's talking about a group of Judaizers uh, who they taught that to be a Christian, you still had to follow the Mosaic law. Now remember, the people of Philippi, they're not Jewish. They didn't grow up being Jewish. And so for them to actually follow Jesus and to follow the Mosaic law, made you know there were some significant things that needed to happen, especially for the men, that they didn't necessarily want to go through. And Paul's wanting to basically correct them, because this teaching was taking hold in the church. 
And there, was, there were two main teachings, and we'll get to one of the other ones later, that were really gripping the church that were in error. And so Paul's writing this letter to remind them and say, this is not where you find your joy. This is not what it's about. And if you're not sure about that, let me explain. He goes on and says this, that I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's the day you're meant to get circumcised, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul is presenting the fact that if it was about the Mosaic law, he is at the top of the rung. If, if he was going to experience joy in the Christian faith because of following the Jewish law, he had success. He had everything you could possibly ask for. Everything about his Jewishness, he was at the top of. So he's wanting to point out, he's wanting to explain to the people in Philippi, if you think that's the answer, well then, hey, look no further than me because I've got all that. But, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. I want you to imagine for a moment that you reached the ultimate success in your profession. You got to the absolute top of what it would be, and you might have different what it is, you know, in different areas. Maybe you don't want to be the boss. That's not what you're aiming for. But in your particular spot, you were as successful as you could be. You, you attained the fullness of what you could ever dream of in your profession. What Paul is saying is that's completely worthless to me because he was at the top of the Jewish religion. He had done everything he could do. And what Paul is saying, all that I'd lived for, all that I'd strived for, all that I'd set out to achieve, none of that matters in light of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Not just some things, not just those things that I wanted to lose and I'm kind of glad to sort of kick out the door. I have given everything. My place, my position, my standing, my dependability of being able to sort of stay in one location. He's traveling all over the world. He doesn't have a place to go home every night because he's here, there and everywhere. He's imprisoned again and again and again. Why? Because for him, knowing Christ is the ultimate success. Knowing Christ unlocks everything else about his experience in this life. And, and everything else can actually be pushed to the side. Everything else is kind of superfluous. If you can just know 
Christ. Picking up, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. If it was about achieving salvation, Paul had that all sorted. When he was Saul, before he had his name changed, and as he was following the Jewish law, he had everything together. If it was about achieving your own salvation, he had that squared away. And so what was going on in this Philippian church is they kind of bought into some of these ideas. They'd they'd heard about Jesus because Paul had come and shared him quite strongly. And then Paul and his brothers and sisters have gone off to plant other churches. And another group have kind of come in and they're starting to convince them, you haven't done enough. You need to do more. You need to follow the Jewish law. You need to get all these things in place. And Paul is wanting to say to them, that is not where your faith comes from. It's not the law. It's not what you can do. It's what Jesus has already done. Paul had everything the Judaizers were offering and he cast it aside. Because through Jesus, he had discovered that those things were worthless. Just like for us today, so often we can be seeking all kinds of things and and looking for all kinds of success and and looking for joy and happiness in getting to the top of our own workplaces, our own uh, community spaces, or we can really be looking for all of those things. And maybe we get the accolades and maybe we get the awards and maybe we get the adulation of others. But that's not where you will find joy. You might find some happiness. You might find some settledness. You might find some of those things. But the joy that is shared in the Scriptures is found in knowing Jesus and giving everything else away to then live each day in light of Christ. And he's not sure that they've got it yet. So he really wants to like narrow down in on this. And he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want to experience what Jesus experienced. I want to kind of be there and kind of know what it was that Jesus went through. And I want to give of my life in these areas. See, what brought Paul comfort? What brought him confidence? What brought him joy was not what he achieved, what he did, what he succeeded at. It wasn't even his church planting because he was actually pretty successful. Yes, he ended up in prison. Okay, maybe that's not your mark of success. But pretty much whatever he put his mind to, he did well in. And yet he comes in and says, I want to know Christ. That's what gets me up in the morning. After I snoozed about three times. That, that's what makes me go, yes. And that's it. But that's, that's actually about as basic as the Christian story can get, the message of Christian faith can get. 
It's a really easy message that we will spend the rest of our lives trying to actually grasp. Because though it's an easy message, you and I both know it's not an easy thing to live out. Because every day we have things pulling at our attention. Every day we have desires that start to creep up from within. And they, they might even t- attach themselves to good Christian things and go, oh, if I could just be a little bit more successful as a pastor, if, if I could have just a little bit bigger church, you know, maybe others will see that and go, oh, isn't that great? Look at that church go. Or maybe in your workplace, it'll be, yeah, my work, my work colleagues, they can see how good I am at what I do. Then it's a really easy message so hard to live out. But Paul is wanting the people in the Philippians, the Philippians to know this is where you will actually find joy. This is a joy that cannot be taken away from you. And then what, what else might, whatever temptations you might have, what other relationships might be pulling you away from this, whatever jobs or success or accolades or things of this world, whatever they might be, that getting to the place where you could actually just sit there and go, you know what, I've got Jesus. That's actually enough. It's actually all I need. That is where you will experience fullness of joy. So really easy, but I know that that's not... I kind of wrestled as I was writing this because I have to go where the text goes. I don't get to choose what I say. And Paul seems to make it abundantly clear that it's, it's as simple as just want Christ. And as I'm writing, I'm going, yeah, but... I struggle to do that. Like, how can I preach and just, just, just want Jesus? Because it's true. That is where joy is found. It's just a wrestle that we face. When I, just pressing on to that, he continues on with this. Not that I've already obtained all of this. Okay, there's a bit of hope. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature, all of us then who are mature, should take such a view on such things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Now, he's not talking about salvation here. Because prior to this, he's been very clear. Salvation comes from faith. It's not because I've achieved. It's not because I've done anything. He is not saying here that he hasn't achieved salvation. He has to work towards salvation. He is talking about living a life on purpose for Jesus. That that what Christ has called him heavenward for, that what Christ has instilled in him is to give each day over to God and say, God, how would you have me use this day? That in each place we find ourselves, each workplace, each family activity, uh, each 
locations, social engagement they're involved in, wherever we work, wherever we rest, wherever we play, whatever it is that we're doing, whatever it is that we're chasing, whatever it is that we're seeking, that we would wholeheartedly give that over and use it to be seeking Jesus in that space. What Paul is really effectively saying to the people in Philippi is, there is no room for passive Christianity. But I like, and I will go back, I like that it says, this then is how all of us who are mature should view such things. He recognises that not everybody who is following Jesus is going to be at a place where they've reached the fullness of this. That this is actually something that comes with maturity. As we grow and as we step towards this and as we become more like what Christ, the, the work that he does in us is he works in and through us to help us reach this place of maturity. But that is the goal. That is what Paul is saying. This is what I seek. This is what I desire. This is what I long for. That each and every part of my life will be directed towards, will be seeking towards these purposes. There's no room for passive Christianity. A Christianity that just kind of goes, you know what, okay, today I do my God stuff and then I get on with the rest of my life. It's each and every day, each and every moment. So he continues on, he, he wants to really give them something to hold on to. He says, join together in following my example. Look to my life, he says, look to who I am, look to my practice. Follow me, a bit like Jesus said, follow him. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So remember, there are people within the Philippian church that are calling them towards something else that are suggesting that there are other ways to live. And Paul's wanting to remind them, when I came, the gospel that we shared with you, look to those who are demonstrating and living that out and let them be the people that help you see how to live and follow Jesus. Or even, even more clearly, I think, which is realistic to us. Remember that which, you know us, we, they had dinner, they ate together, they sat together, they went through these things together. Those people that you're in relationship with who are living this out, let them be the people that draw you towards what this can look like. Not those people who are famous, not the, those who may not be living in that way, who have other answers, not those who tickle your ears and tell you the things that you want to hear, but those that you've seen live this way. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears. This is not just something he's just saying. He's not just like a, a he's not a robot just saying and do this and do this and do this. Like he feels this. Even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, this is where the other group comes into the occasion. So within the Philippian church, we've got this because I've obviously been able to study the history of it. One group of people that was distracting and pulling them away from the gospel were the Judaizers, those who were saying to them, 
you need to you need to follow the law. You need to follow the Jewish teachings if you're going to know Jesus. The other group was a group of Epicureans. Now, Epicureans were all about experiencing, you know, all you can experience now. Enjoy yourself. Seek comfort. Have the best quality of life. Make sure that you have all the good things. Enjoy that extra decadent chocolate bar. Have all those extra bits and pieces. Enjoy now. And so Paul's wanting to remind them, that's not where we're at. He doesn't actually make clear who the many are. He doesn't give us a specific name. He doesn't name a people. But he makes it clear that it's a people that are set on earthly achievements, are set on earthly experiences. And that what we experience in the here and now is what's important. But Paul goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. One of the hardest things that we will grapple with probably till the day that Jesus calls us home is that this world is not our home. And everything that we achieve and, and set our minds on and, and look to have here is temporary. And yet, how many of us so often get caught in that trap of being really focused on the next thing? And Paul's reminding the Philippian church, and I think the reminder that it is to us, is that this world, we will never experience the fullness of life in this life. We will never experience the fullness of what God has for us in this life. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we need to seek. That's what we need to be reminded of. We need to lift our gaze up and be reminded that that is ultimately our home. And so whenever we, we sort of start to feel those things that are pulling us and we go, you know, if I can just get that thing here, if I can, then I'll be happy. To be reminded that that is not actually where we're going to find our happiness. Because that too can be taken away. There are too many stories where people have been sick and they might have even achieved it. And then the next day something terrible happens and it's taken out from underneath them. They lose the thing that they'd set their heart on. Or they never even get there. They spend all this time. I, I feel for all the football players who set their eyes on winning a premiership and then go through a whole career without ever attaining that which they seek. And you hear interviews of some former players who were at the height of their game, who were really well-renowned and seen who went through a career without winning a premiership, and they say that they still feel it was incomplete. That because they never got that which they sought, they actually never got the joy of experiencing it in that place. What do you desire? 
if it's anything earthly, you either may achieve it and then lose it, or you may never achieve it at all. So Paul is reminding the Philippian church, and I'd say reminding us, our citizenship is in heaven. We, we use this life to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Sounds like someone, something someone else once said. You know, Jesus. We use this life to store up for ourselves things that are beyond this life. And that's where we will experience and receive the fullness of joy. If we're seeking it here, we, won't, we will be seeking something that is not fully there. There's still a joy that we can experience in this life based on knowing Christ. And Paul talks about that. But ultimately, we have to lift our gaze up and see that it is beyond this place. But this is the key. And again, I, it sounds really easy and I want, to, I want to recognize with you that I actually know that it's much harder than it seems. But the key to unlocking the fullness of joy that the Bible offers us is to simply desire Jesus. It's to desire Him above all else. And to let seeking Him be the thing that drives each and every day that we live. So just a couple of questions for reflection. Maybe one of these will be what resonates with you or, or maybe you'll get a few of them. But the first question is simply this. Do you know Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you're exploring faith. You've, you've never actually said yes to Jesus before and uh, this is actually kind of a, a new idea or you've wrestled with whether or not you want to take this step. This is the starting point. It's not the finish. You'll spend the rest of your life working through this. But you have to choose Jesus above all else and say, this is where I get my sense of purpose. This is where I get my identity. This is where I get who I am from. From knowing Christ. Three questions for those of you who would say that you follow Jesus. What are you putting your confidence in? Like if it actually scratched beneath the surface, what is it that gives you confidence? Is it how good you are at public speaking? Some of you go, oh, that's not where I get confidence from. Is it how well I'm thought of by my work colleagues? Is it by the fact that my family sees me as indispensable? All good places to be, but is that where your confidence comes from? Paul's confidence came from one place. I know Christ. What are the things that you are seeking to build confidence in that may not actually be the place that you need to get your confidence from? Or another way of looking at it, or a slightly different nuance to it is, what do you actually desire? Not what, not what should you desire. You might know what the answer is. But what is it that you do actually desire? The solution is not to pretend that you don't desire things. You know, I'm just going to pretend that I don't desire that chocolate bar. That doesn't go so well. You need to acknowledge what you desire and put in place either things that mean you don't do that, aka be broke so you can't buy one, uh, or you need to find ways of viewing that desire differently. It may not be that the answer is to completely remove the desire. 
But you need to recognize where that desire is going to be pulling at you in your faith. What is it that you are living for? What is it that you're seeking? And, and how can you maybe look at that through a different lens? How can you place Jesus in the scope of that desire? Not just to you know, make it so you can still do what you wanted to do and that secretly is what you're looking for, but to actually look at it through Jesus to change how that desire lives in you. And then what are the aspects of this life that distract you from living fully for Jesus? What, what are the things that take over your life? What are the, the parts, what are the things that go on your calendar? What are the commitments that you make? Or maybe, And they might be good things, but they diminish your capacity to fully live following Jesus. How can you see those afresh? Because that is where joy will come from knowing Christ. That's it. So it's an easy answer that we will spend the rest of our lives grappling with and wrestling with and really trying to own. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your son. We thank you that we can know him. And then in knowing him, we can find life. I want to pray for each of us today as we perhaps cognitively recognize the need to just know Christ. But in our hearts, we grapple with the tensions that pull at us. May the words of Paul remind us, may you help us to see and to live out what it means to actually be content in just knowing And help us to put aside those things that we might put confidence in that are actually of no benefit. That would make our desire be for you and not for anything else. And that you would lift our gaze towards heaven and live this life in view of all the fullness that has to come. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.